Welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Wednesday the 6th of July. I'm Anthony Day. Food is probably the most important issue of our time. It's the effect on food which will be the most crucial consequence of the climate emergency. Flood, fire, drought, hurricanes and storms can all damage our ability to feed the world. Food security is increasingly difficult as population rises and more and more global consumers demand a Western diet. To meet these challenges, we need new techniques, new ideas and new farming practices. Meet a man with a vision. Today I'm talking to Eddie Badrina, who is CEO of Eden Green Technology, an organization which claims to help people around the world sustainably grow large amounts of food using less land, water and energy. Eddie, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report. Anthony, thanks for having me. Appreciate you. Uh, appreciate this opportunity to have a conversation. It's a pleasure. Now, look, with a growing global population, there have long been concerns about feeding everyone. But the Ukraine conflict has highlighted risks of grain shortages, price rises, and potential starvation in some African countries. The British government's recently published its food strategy to widespread criticism, and I've commented separately on that. The supply of food is firmly in the headlines. Your answer is for vertical farming and hydroponics. Is that a complete solution? Uh, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't say that we are a part of the solution. Uh, we are not a silver bullet, and I don't think anyone ought to claim to be the silver bullet to uh, addressing the food supply, both shortage now and then long term, just the, uh, the supply for a growing population. I will say that as a part of the solution, I think we're a pretty special, uh, pretty unique uh, way to solve for that food supply. Uh, because we basically are taking the farm from however uh, far away it is uh, from the population centers and bringing it right next to distribution centers. So we're, we're almost eliminating the entire cost and wastes associated with your traditional supply chain. So you're cutting down on food miles. Yes. Now, vertical farms and hydroponics have been around for a while. Mm -hmm. how, as, how are yours different? So uh, the, it's actually a good question that the spectrum really goes from conventional farming and then to greenhouses and then all the way on the other end, sort of vertical farming, and, and we're a hybrid. But with conventional farming, you know, uh, call it 40 acres, you know, uh, roughly, uh, you know, from a hectare perspective, I think that's hectare and a half, maybe, I forgot. Uh, well, uh, acre and a half is a hectare roughly, but from 40 acres, you're, you're probably wasting around 800,000 to a million gallons of water a year uh, to, to grow the food. And then to find that 40 acres, uh, you know, where it's, it's cheap enough where the economics work, you're, you're looking at hundreds of miles from a population center. So there's waste from an environmental perspective, there's uh, significant uh, drawbacks, and then and then from a from an economic and supply chain distribution perspective, you've got costs and waste associated in that. Now, what greenhouses have done, greenhouses have uh, eliminated almost all the variables minus uh, some bugs, uh, but really minus you know a, a environmental concerns, 
and then they've let in sunlight, right? So free energy, basically. Um, greenhouses are great and they're economical, but only at scale, right? So five acre greenhouse is probably equivalent to a 40 acre farm. Uh, you can bring that a little bit closer to the population center, but not that much, because in order to get the economies that you're looking for from a from, a, from an investment perspective, uh, most of the greenhouse companies here in the United States, maybe a little different in Europe, but I don't think so, are building in 60 to 120 acre increments. Uh, it, that's just huge, right? Uh, and it's to get the better economies of scale. But again, you won't find 60 to 120 acres remotely near a population center. Uh, so they, while they solve for some of the environmental and the waste costs, they don't solve for that distribution piece. And then on the final, and finally on the other end, you've got uh, vertical farms. And vertical farms solve that because an acre and a half of a vertical farm is equivalent to about five to six acres of a greenhouse, which is equivalent to 40 acres of farming. So you can put that really near a distribution center, really near a population. The problem with vertical farms as they stand is they're unprofitable. It's too expensive to build. Um, and then for what you're growing, unless you're growing tomatoes or berries, which are very high volume, high margin, uh, you cannot make a profit on those. So they don't solve for the economics and just the overall economic sustainability of it all. So what we've done is we've combined vertical farming within a greenhouse. Your, your audience may say, well, why doesn't everyone do that? Well, because it's really hard to do. So difficult, in fact, that we actually have a patent on it that it's, it's issued a issued patent in the United States and in Europe to do what we do. No one else can do exactly what we do. Right, and that leads you to be able to produce food, um, not just uh, tomatoes and berries, and to do it with less energy and less water. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so um, we, we can grow around 200 varietals of leafy greens, herbs, uh, fruiting some fruiting crops, and then obviously tomatoes, some berries, right? Uh, economically, we're focused on around 75 varietals, mostly around the leafy greens and herbs and peppers. And the reason we're focused on that is because we can get great margins off of that. And it's something that no one else can touch because of the, just the economics of growing those things, the grow costs versus the market prices just, there's not enough margin in there, but we can. Um, and so that's what that's what we're focused on. We let other folks focus on tomatoes and berries, just give it to them, right? We wanna focus on this huge swath of uh, goods that really uh, no one else can grow out of, uh, unless you're in a greenhouse or, or conventional farming. Right, so how are you able to do this? Is it the way you control the climate, the way you control the the, the feed to the hydroponic system or, or, or what is it? Yeah, so well, now we're getting to in, tell me. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, now we're getting into the technical details, which some of your, you know, some of your audience may find really interesting as well. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, th there's a type of hydroponics, which is we, what we do called NFT. Uh, it's not non-fungible tokens, which is sort of the, the word of the day, right? But NFT hydroponics, nutrient film technique. And we've basically taken the NFT hydroponics and then flipped it 
90 degrees so that it's vertical instead of horizontal, mm -hmm. right? So most of the NFT, the hydroponics that people will see in a greenhouse, uh, which is very common in a greenhouse, they're on these rails and they have gutters that are probably two degrees of incline. So it flows from one side to the other. Uh, we've basically taken that and then flipped it so that it's going from vertically from top all the way to bottom. Um, the, the secret sauce, if you will, resides in how our, we call them towers, how our 18 foot towers are designed to let maximum water flow, maximum nutrients uh, flow through uh, and then address the roots of these, uh, of the plants. And then combined with uh, distinctive, discrete airflow, temperature, humidity, um, CO2 levels uh, to each plant spot. In essence, we are creating a microclimate around each individual plant spot, as opposed to uh, controlling the environment of the entire greenhouse. When you have a microclimate, a number of things happen. Uh, one is uh, you get uh, extreme efficiency when it comes to energy usage because you're only conditioning roughly one fifth of the entire volume of that greenhouse because you're just focused on the 12 inches radius around each plant spot. And then the second thing that you do is you have with, with maximum efficiency, you have maximum control. So just the way that we do it, uh, from the top to the bottom, each of those nutrient, each of these plants get what we refer internally as an all-you-can-eat buffet, and it's just nutrient-rich water at the exact right temperature, twenty-four-seven, uh, combined with with the air, and then with finally with the light coming from sunlight, and it just it has this effect on plants where they grow really quickly high nutrients, uh, optimal um, structure, if you will. And then uh, what then that results in for the consumer is you've got from literally from uh, harvest to shelf in 72 hours. And when it goes from harvest to shelf in 72 hours, and because it's grown so nutrient rich and dense, uh, it'll last in your, in your refrigerator for weeks on end. Right, so what you're actually doing is you're controlling the microclimate at the plant level. Yes. And so that means, I suppose, given that you have got plants at different stages of growth, then you've got a different microclimate depending on whether it's a seedling, whether it's just beginning to grow or whether it's just coming to the point of harvest. Yes, and so you're exactly right. And then what you'll see in an acre and a half greenhouse of ours is you'll see uh, sort of this perpetual harvest, right? So say there are a hundred rows in our greenhouse. Well, you can really only plant three rows a day because it's something like 4,000 plant spots in a day. Uh, by the time you get to row 90, 30 days later, 28 days later, or in some cases, 21 days later, it's time to harvest you're planting on row 90 or 80, but it's already time to harvest row one. And so there's just this perpetual harvest going within our greenhouse. And it's really more of a factory than it is, you know, uh, uh, you know, an open field farm, right? It's just, it's day after day, we're planting 
we're seeding, we're harvesting, we're cleaning, and then we're planting all over again. So then from an economics perspective, we can afford to employ up to 30 full-time people in a greenhouse, which is not insignificant for a workforce that, you know, when you're talking about, um, when you're talking about reconnecting uh, the consumer in the community with where with their food and where it's grown and who's growing it, uh, that's pretty significant. Right. Well, you're, you're based there in Texas, aren't you? We are. We are. Now, the external climate must have some sort of effect because the sun beating down on your greenhouses is going to heat <laughs> it up. So therefore, the effect will be different um, yes. depending on where you actually locate these, these plants. Um, have you got installations in other parts of the world? So we're just getting started. We've got, uh, we've got uh, from, a, from the founders are from South Africa. And so they actually uh, built a smaller version of this in South Africa uh, very, very early on. It's not running anymore. Uh, that was probably 10 years ago, uh, five to 10 years ago. But really our first facility is here in Texas. Our second one is being built uh, should be done in a number of weeks from from the time of this recording uh, and then the plan is to have a mesh network of these greenhouses all around the united states and eventually around the world uh, but you you mentioned the temperature differential uh, texas one of the reasons that we chose texas is because at least here in dallas fort worth we get all four seasons right so today right now it's going to be 100 degrees here Mm -hmm. We've also had uh, weeks on end of freezing temperatures and then everything in between, not to mention rain, hail, sleet, you name it, tornadoes, right? So uh, we've really been able to grow and prove out that this can grow and these microclimates are effective in almost any temperate zone. Uh, that you have. There will be some adjustments made, obviously, to the greenhouse itself, but the internal, the, the, the thing that is patented for design and usage, these towers and the control systems that run these towers, uh, they are good in almost any zone. Right. So are you planning to build more greenhouses or more of these units across the world, or are you providing a service so others can actually invest and build them to your design? So we're, we are going to build them uh, and own them ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we will partner with uh, retailers, grocers, distributors, and wholesalers to provide the greens to them. So, uh, you know, in, 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 in this industry, at least, it all really comes down to the buyers and these retailer and, and distributor buyers. Uh, and so uh, where they lead, we will follow. And if they say, uh, we need this built here, you know, in uh, Dallas, then we'll be here. If they say we want it built in Los Angeles, we'll build there. If they say we want to build it, you know, right outside of London, we'll build there. Uh, we will go to where the population is and where they need the, need the food. As you said, you could build it right next to a distribution center. Yes. Just minimizing uh, food miles. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's one of the things m most consumers think, well, why don't you just build it next to a grocery store? Uh, but, but for folks in the industry, uh, they know that uh, to go to a grocery store, it has to always has to go through a distribution center. So even if you built a greenhouse next to a grocery store, 
you'd have to go back to the distribution center and then back to the grocery store. So uh, our, our plan, our strategy is just to, uh, it's a little, uh, it's a little counterintuitive to the normal consumer, but to the industry uh, specialists, they will know, oh man, if you build it next to a distribution center, you are eliminating almost all the food miles. Right. Well, I'd have thought that uh, a, a single unit produced far more than just one store could deal with. Oh, yeah. A single unit will produce roughly 2 million pounds of leafy greens in a year over 13 to 17 harvests. So uh, that is a lot of greens, a lot yeah. of produce. Yeah. yeah. Now, this all seems very sophisticated. I mean, there must be an immense capital cost. And yet you say you make money on it. Yes. Uh, so, so like any good investment, uh, there's percentages and then there's absolute dollars, right? So I would look at this, you know, if you're, a, if you're uh, an interested consumer or an investor, look at it like real estate, right? So, so a building may cost five or 10 or $15 million to build, but the revenues that are going to come out of that should be commensurate in terms of percentage. It's, it's the same way with our greenhouses. Our greenhouses are capital intensive, which is why we're building them ourselves and, and, uh, and going through, uh, you know, through uh, institutional capital to get them built. Uh, but the revenues associated with them, uh, we are, for the business folks in your, in your audience, uh, they'll appreciate that, that we run around 50 to 60% gross margins and anywhere from 20 uh, to 30 upwards to 35% uh, of EBITDA uh, earnings, uh, depending on what we're growing. And this makes you more than competitive, I suppose, with the traditional farmer growing in open fields. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, here in the United States, at least, traditional farmers pride themselves on about 5% margins. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds very interesting. It sounds like the future. Uh, I'll be interested to see how far you can take this, because, of course, um, Many countries in Africa, for example, have not got enough food, but I'd, I wonder whether they would have the capability of raising the investment uh, or indeed have the market to be able to support things like this. But uh, it's, if uh, we go back to where we started, if we can achieve this or you can achieve this with less land, less water and less energy, water and energy being the key things, then absolutely something that's got to be considered, isn't it? Yeah, you know, the, the trends, the, the demographic and economic trends are undeniable, uh, which is, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of the, of the show, population is rising, right? Uh, the, the trends are rising. They're not going down anywhere. Uh, so overall, the population is rising. Um, and with population, demand for healthier, more nutritious foods is rising. Uh, that's just, that's an overall trend across the world. And in the meantime, you have a declining trend in arable land, uh, usable topsoil, and then uh, lastly, water, right? Water is here in the United States, water is the new oil. Uh, it, is, it is very much in, uh, from a 50 year, you know, 25, 50, 75 year time frame. Uh, it is just as competitive in the markets as, uh, as oil will be. And so uh, when you look at those two diverging trends, the delta in the middle can only be filled by folks like us. Right. So presumably you are recycling the, the water that you use. 
Yes. So uh, water, you know, plants transpire, right? They drink water. Uh, but the but the water that is uh, that is released in the air uh, we reclaim uh, because it's very very humid inside one of these greenhouses. So we reclaim as much uh, water in the air as we can through condensate, and then push that back into uh, back into the uh, into the system. And then uh, you know pe people ask there there are a couple of other ways uh, to to really save on water is just the way that we run our systems and the way that uh, we re reuse the water, we only waste the equivalent for, for an acre and a half facility producing 2 million pounds of greens. We only waste the equivalent of two households worth of water in an entire year. Is that right? Yeah. Well, uh, Eddie, thank you very much for sharing all this with us. Now, when you set up your first uh, plant in Europe, do be sure to let us know. Oh, I will. Maybe you, we'll come and hear about it. If we can. Maybe we'll come. Yes, and visit. absolutely. Come visit. Um, and if you or your audience is ever in the United States and, and they're ever in, in Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, have them look me up and I'll give them a tour myself. Great. Well, we'll hold you to that. Uh, I've no plans to be over there, but I'm sure there are people listening who may well take you up on it. So, Eddie, thank you very much for, for sharing with the Sustainable Futures Report. Hey, thank you so much for having me. There's an invitation from Eddie Badrina of Eden Green, so if you're in Texas, why don't you get in touch? This week I return briefly to two weekly episodes, so the normal magazine edition will come out on Friday. As I explained, the Sustainable Futures Report will take a break for August and then come back in September with one episode per week. Episodes will in future be on Wednesdays, and they will alternate with an interview one week and a magazine roundup the next week. There's no shortage of issues to report on and no shortage of people banging on my door and asking to be interviewed. It's great that I have the option to make a choice and I turn away almost as many as I actually interview. This week I've been interviewed twice. Just published is the latest edition of Hello Mercedes with Mercedes Fernandez when I talk about how your daily choices contribute to climate change. It's published as a podcast and it's also on YouTube. There are links on the Sustainable Futures Report website. I also appeared on GB News TV talking with the President of the National Union of Mine Workers about the West Cumbria coal mine, which is expected to be given approval later this week. GB News don't seem to have kept it on their YouTube channel but a friend of mine made a recording which I'll share when I get it. The consequences and implications of the climate crisis have never been more important. My objective is to make the public aware, but at the same time to make people aware that the alternative to business as usual is not some sort of dystopian future. There are so many people working in so many different ways to do things differently and do them better that we need to tell people about them and urge them to urge governments, in turn, to use imagination and innovation to preserve our standards of living, to improve it for some nations, and to do it while preserving life on Earth. Please do let me know what you think about the Sustainable Futures Report, about what I talk about, and about what you'd like to hear about. As I've said in the past, there's no point in my doing this if nobody wants to listen. For the moment, that's it. I intend to publish the next episode on Friday, but if my voice gives out, I won't. 
That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time.